We are gonna dive back into the book of Hebrews this morning. We're in Hebrews chapter six, verses one through three. Uh, If you're new, we're going through a sermon series called The Sermon God Wrote, Uh, going line by line, verse by verse through the book of Hebrews. The Sermon God Wrote, the sermon, because the book of Hebrews was originally a sermon that was then turned into a letter, a, a book of the Bible. And the sermon God wrote, because we don't really know who the human author is. It's anonymous, but we do know it comes from the Holy Spirit because scripture is breathed out by God. And so we're in Hebrews chapter six, verses one through three. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there. You may notice that these are some verses that Pastor Shane taught on and included last week in his teaching. We're gonna kind of drill down deeper today into uh, what this passage calls the, the elementary doctrines and these foundational truths. We're gonna really spend some time drilling down deep today. If you got a pen and paper, you might wanna put that to good use today. Let's do this. Let's read these verses. We'll pray, and then we'll spend some time unpacking them and see what God wants to teach us today. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can stand on a firm foundation. And that firm foundation is not uh, ideas from a man or wisdom from humans, but God, the firm foundation that we can stand on is truth from your word, truth that you have given to us by your spirit through the apostles and through the prophets. God, I pray today you would help us to love you and worship you with our minds. God, help us to think deeply, help us to think clearly, help us to think critically about these truths that you call us to study. God, I pray you would guard my lips. I only want to teach that which is in line with your truth. And God, I pray for my friends here today, my brothers and sisters, I pray that we would all have soft and teachable hearts that we may grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray. And everyone said, amen. About 10 years ago, my wife and I, uh, we owned a home. It was in Anchorage, Alaska. We bought this house uh, from a relative. And one of the things that we loved about this house was that it had an unfinished basement. It was dirt floors and bare stud walls. And we thought, wouldn't it be great someday to turn this, this basement, this unfinished basement into uh, maybe a mother-in-law apartment and we could rent it out to somebody from the church or we could take in somebody if they needed a place to stay. We could use it for maybe a family member to live there. We, we had all sorts of plans and great ideas for it. And so uh, my dad and I, my dad knows how to actually build things. I don't. I know how to carry things to my dad who knows how to build things. We started this remodel project and we decided to turn this unfinished basement into a mother-in-law apartment. And it was gonna be great. I'm gonna have a little kitchen, a single bedroom, a bathroom, a living space. It was gonna be a, a great plan we, we put together. Well, one of the first things we had to do was move some dirt around. There was areas in the ground where there were big holes and there were areas kind of around the edge where the foundation was where there were big piles of dirt. And so we started moving one of the piles of dirt into one of the holes. And as we started digging, you know, just old school shovel, hand hand digging the dirt, we started getting to where we thought we should bump up against foundation, but it just kept going. The dirt did. Come to find out, whoever built the house originally left these piles of dirt and just poured foundation over the top of them so that in some places, the foundation was only about eight or nine inches thick. Now, I'm no construction guru, but even I know that's not a very firm foundation. So all of our plans for this apartment, all our plans for this mother-in-law apartment had to be put on hold and we had to go back in and relay new foundations for this house that we were living in. I tell you what, I had a moment of kind of panic. Like my wife, my young children, we've been living in this house that has areas of completely unstable foundation. And I was thinking about that house and its foundations this morning. I was up early and I was just kind of scrolling through social media. Apparently in Anchorage, in the middle of the night last night, a 7.1 earthquake hit 
And I was looking through uh, many of my Facebook friends. They had fish tanks fall over, stuff knocked off their walls, drawers knocked out of their kitchen. It was a serious earthquake. And I was just thinking about, I hope those foundations held up. I think it's fine. I don't know. I don't live there anymore. I don't know what the statute of limitations is on foundations. But I was thinking about that because if you don't have a solid foundation in place, when times of shaking comes, when times of storm come, you're, you're, you're gonna be in a world of hurt. The author of the book of Hebrews, the, the speaker, this pastor, uses the analogy of foundations in the verses we were looking at today. He talks about not wanting to lay again a foundation. It's, it's kind of like what we experienced with, with this house project. There should be a foundation in place. The people who built it in the first place should have put solid foundations in, but they didn't. And so my father and I had to go in and lay again new foundations so that we could then build the rest of uh, the project that we wanted to get to. That's an analogy that the author of Hebrews is using for the Christian faith. For the Christian faith, what he's saying in, in the larger context of this passage, what he's saying is, I want to teach you guys about the high priesthood of Jesus. And I want to say some, some kind of difficult and hard to understand things about how he comes from the, the priestly lineage of Melchizedek. But he, he takes a time out, does the author of Hebrews. He takes a time out, a kind of a parenthesis to offer really a, a three-part rebuke. And you remember these from the verses we looked at last week. Verse 11, he says, I I've got all this stuff I want to say, but you've become dull of hearing. Your listening skills aren't so sharp. Feel like I'm talking to a brick wall, essentially, is what he's saying. Second part of this rebuke is he says, you ought to be teachers. You ought to know this stuff well enough that you could explain it to other people, but yet here I am having to explain it to you again. And then the third part of this rebuke is he says, you need milk, not solid food. That is a not so subtle way of calling his hearers babies. You babies, you need milk. You can't even, you can't even chew on a potato. You need just milk in a bottle. It's a rebuke. It's a word of rebuke, but it's meant and it's designed and it's intended to help spur the hearers on to action. I don't want to be a baby. I don't want to be immature in my thinking. I want to move towards maturity. You notice this list as we were reading through, there's these so-called elementary doctrines. I think for many people, uh, we might need to hear this rebuke ourselves. I, was, I came across this quote from a biblical scholar, Tom Wright, this week. I'll read it to you. I like what he said. He says, at this point, once more, many modern Christians will rub their eyes in surprise. These are the basics? The original early Christian ABC? Most of our congregations don't know much about them. Many in our churches today couldn't tell you why we baptize people, what precisely the resurrection is, and why they should believe in it, let alone what dead works are and why you should repent of them. If this is the alphabet of Christian education, I fear there are many churches as well as individual Christians that need to go back to primary school. It's not, I think, that they've learned the alphabet long ago and forgotten it. No, they haven't ever learned it in the first place. They are getting by on the spiritual equivalent of grunts and hand signals. And as the saying goes, if you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. This is in line with the rebuke that the author of Hebrews is, is giving to us. Church, for me, my heart towards you is that you would be mature in your thinking. The heart of all of your elders, the whole elder team, our heart towards you is that you would be mature in your thinking. I'll take it one step further. God's heart for you as disciples is that you would be mature in your thinking that you would not be foundationless, that you would not have to go back and do work that should have been done in the first place. 
And so we're gonna do this today. We're gonna go over these six foundational doctrines. We're gonna dive in deep. Like I said, if you're a note taker, this might be a, a great time for you to get your, get your you know, arm limbered up and ready to take some notes because we're gonna dive deep on these truths and on these doctrines. Before we do, let me give us just kind of two guiding principles, two things to help us as we think through these doctrines. The first one is this. I want to encourage all of you to approach this with humility and to not overestimate how independent of a thing thinker you are. The Bible is very clear that there is a battle for our minds. In fact, when the Apostle Paul in particular speaks about spiritual warfare, sometimes we think of spiritual warfare like, like angels and demons fighting, and it looks like a scene from Lord of the Rings, which it may, I don't know, I've never seen the spirit realm that way. But the Bible uses language about the battle being for our mind, and it's a battle between truths and lies. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, they listened to the voice of the serpent. They listened to the liar. And the problem is, is each and every single one of us since have also been prone to listen to the voice of the snake. What's more, we live in a culture, we live in a society that is dominated by the media. Maybe more than any other culture uh, that has ever existed, we have so much media shouted at us. You almost, you almost don't have time to just sit and think your own thoughts. I think, I don't mean to sound too conspiracy theorist, but all of the TV, the newspapers, the, the music you listen to, it's all owned by about six corporations. Did you know that? And they are really good at manipulating our thoughts, our feelings, because they want to get us to spend money. I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but I don't think we, we, we understand just the pressure we live under. It's the, it's the air we breathe. It's the water we swim in. How are you coming across your thoughts? I don't think that you're as independent of a thinker as you think you are. All of your thoughts, let me just, let me just say it this way. You've never had an original thought in your life. I don't mean that as an insult. I mean that all of, well, maybe, maybe for some of you. No, we have our thoughts shaped by something whether it's your parents, whether it's your teachers, whether it's your education system, whether it's the media that you consume, you will have your thought life shaped by something and it is the Christian's battle to have our thought life shaped by the word of God above everything else. It's a fight that we're called to fight. You might think that you're an independent thinker, but really you have to test everything by the word of God. And so I just want to encourage you, take stock of yourself. What is it that's shaping your thoughts above everything else? It's not a sin to be caught up on the latest show that Netflix released, but if you are better at quoting that show than you are at quoting the word of God, then I would say there's a problem with your maturity as a Christian. Can I say that to you with love? Second guiding principle I want to give us as we talk about these foundational doctrines is don't let your study of doctrine lead you to pride. There's a very real pitfall we can fall into. We can begin to think, well, because I now know big theological terms, I've studied the Bible in the original languages, I've got my systematics all in order, so therefore I am mature. No, you might just be a really smart, immature person. You're an immature person with a lot of information, which is the worst. <laughs> if your study of doctrine doesn't lead you to fall on your face before a holy God, then you're not studying the doctrine rightly. If it doesn't lead you to live your life in a more Christ-like way, then it's not Christian study of doctrine. There are non-Christians that know all of the theological terms, that know all of the chapters and verses, that know all of the systematic theologies, but they're not saved and they are not spiritually mature because they do not worship God and lead godly lives. As Christians, we have to be very careful that as we dive into studying doctrine, we don't allow it to become arrogance in our own hearts. Amen? So those are kind of two guiding principles I just want to put before you as we dive into these verses. So let's pick it up in verse one. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation. Now, this word leave, it doesn't mean that you leave as in you forget it or you move on. When you learn your ABCs, you don't learn them and then leave them 
and just forget them. No, you, you leave them in the sense that you're always building on them. Same thing with the analogy of a foundation of a house. You don't leave the foundation of a house. You don't build it and then leave it and go start building somewhere else. You leave it in the sense that you move on to the next phase of building. And I love the encouragement that this author of Hebrews gives to us. He's a pastor after all. He says, let us leave the elementary doctrine. He says, I wanna help you. I wanna teach you. I wanna walk with you so that we can move on to the next phase of Christian maturity and discipleship. I also want to just make one clarifying statement because again, this is a rebuke. I wanna make sure that the rebuke is heard by those to whom it is intended. If you are someone who is a new Christian or young in your faith and you don't know these doctrines, uh, it's okay. Today is your day to start really learning them and putting these building blocks in place. However, for others of you, you've been a Christian for a long time. You've, you've walked with the Lord, you've known him, you've known his word, and yet you're really shaky uh, on shaky foundations. You need to hear this rebuke. You need to hear this rebuke that God wants more for you than just a surface level understanding of the doctrines of the faith, okay? So I, I want those of you, and I'm, I'm not gonna be prescriptive about it. I'm gonna let the Holy Spirit convict your heart as he sees fit. I just want you to be willing to take stock. Am I one of these Christians that needs to hear this rebuke? Where am I at in my own process of maturing? Uh, am I where God would want me to be? Or are there areas where my foundations are weak and I'm having to go back and lay them again? So what are these foundations? There's six of them, but they're actually arranged in three pairs, uh, three little couplets. And so we're going to take them two at a time. Numbers one and two, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. That's doctrine one, foundational doctrine two, repentance and faith. And the first thing I want you to know about this is that repentance and faith, they always, always go together. They are two sides of the same coin. Notice how the language of movement is in this verse. It says repentance from dead works. You're, you're going away from something and at the same time, it's faith toward God. That movement is leaving something and moving towards something else. When you are reading the Bible and you see the word repentance, it's okay to automatically assume that faith is in the picture as well. If you see the word faith, it's always predicated upon repentance from sin. Repentance and faith always go together. So what is repentance? Number two, repentance is more than just feeling bad. It's turning, it's changing. It's walking away from something. Sometimes people have this sense that if I just felt guilty, I'm repentant. Oftentimes repentance does come with feelings of sorrow or brokenheartedness, but it is so much more than that. How many of you uh, in your own life or some, the life of some of you known have seen someone who messes up, does something bad, they feel really bad about it for like a day or two and then they just do it again. The Bible would say that that's not real repentance. Real repentance is turning away, yes, in sorrow, but turning away from what it is that's against God's will. Philip Edgecombe Hughes, a Bible commentator, puts it this way, repentance is the changing of one's mind and attitude, the reversal of one's position displayed in the renunciation of self-adequacy, meaning I am done relying upon myself. I'm despairing of myself. I'm not good enough in myself. The renunciation of self-adequacy and in turning to God in sorrow, forget this, get this, sinfully robbing him of the glory which is due to him alone. Isn't that an interesting description of sin? Robbing God of glory. You and I are all glory thieves. There's a whole nother sermon in there, which I'll just leave for another time. This is the first step on the road which leads the sinner back home to the father. It is the moment when he comes to himself like the, the parable of the prodigal son and in doing so turns away from the course he has pursued to this point. Church, there's so much more to repentance than just feeling bad. Yes, it can have brokenheartedness. Yes, it can have sorrow, but it means that you want to turn away from what it is that is causing God's heart to be broken. 
And then faith, let's define faith. Faith, maybe simplest, simplest put, way I could put it is moving toward God through Jesus. Moving toward God through Jesus. Again, moving away from sin, moving toward God. Maybe more than, than any other book in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews uses this language about movement and walking and journeying and moving towards God. And one of the verses that I got to preach on a few weeks back talked about how we are now invited to boldly approach God's throne because of the grace of our high priest, Jesus. See, sin separates us from God. Because of our sinfulness, we are separated from God. And people have all sorts of ideas about how to get returned to right relationship with God. People try all sorts of things. The most prevalent one being, I'm gonna do enough good works that God will either be impressed by me or my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds and God will accept me and love me and me and God will be in right relationship. I know I've said it before, but I told you the story about the woman that I talked with on the airplane who said to me, me and God have an arrangement worked out. To which I want to say, if that arrangement is not called the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then it's not a good arrangement. Because what God has said is the arrangement, the way that relationship with God is restored, the way that breach that has been created by our sin is only through Jesus Christ. It's only through trusting in him, his death on the cross, his blood poured out because of our sinfulness, his burial in the ground, and then his victorious resurrection on the third day, proving that he can conquer over sin and death. That is what it means to have faith. It means you're moving toward God through Jesus. If you are not a Christian, the first step that God invites you to take is to repent of your sin and to move toward God through Jesus. If you are a Christian, if you are already one of the people of God, then the ongoing pattern of your life is continual repentance and moving toward God through Jesus. It's the same. Whether it's the first step or the 10,000th step, it's repentance and faith, which helps me uh, explain this phrase, dead works. Repentance from dead works. Notice that. See, again, our efforts to get good enough for God are not good enough. Apart from Christ, our works are dead. Did you know that? If you've not trusted in Christ, all of your good deeds, the Bible would say, are dead. But here is the beautiful, glorious good news. When you become a Christian, when you repent of your sin, you trust in Jesus, now you have works that are done and they're glorifying to God and they're edifying for the other people around you and they're no longer dead, but they're living. See, apart from God, we're trying to earn something. All my works are, I'm trying to buy something. I'm trying to get something. I need God to forgive me. I need God to love me. I need God to uh, accept me. But when you understand that God has already forgiven you, already loved you, already accepted you. Now your good works are not done in trying to earn something. They're done as loving response to the gift you've already received. Do you guys see the difference? It's a huge difference in motivation. I will say, I, I get concerned for many of my Christian brothers and sisters that we too often slip back into earning mode. We slip back into earning mode. Well, I gotta keep doing good works. I gotta keep going to church. I gotta keep reading my Bible so that God will love me. And to which I would say, God loves you. Why don't you go to church and read your Bible because you're so excited about how much God has loved you. Totally different motivational structure. And those works are no longer dead. Ephesians 2 says you were created for good works in Christ Jesus. But that verse, that section of the verse only comes after it says, it's by grace you've been saved through faith, not of works. Isn't that amazing? These are foundational doctrines. Let me say this. If it does not include repentance and faith, it is not Christian. If you turn on the TV and there is a preacher and he says that he's a Christian preacher and his message doesn't include something of repentance and faith, then it is not a Christian sermon. If you go to Barnes and Noble and you, those still exist, right? Uh, if you go to a bookstore, wherever you want, if you go to Amazon and order a book and the section is 
Christianity and you get the book and it has nothing to do with repentance and faith, then it is not a Christian book. I'm not saying that repentance and faith are the only things that Christians talk about, but if repentance and faith don't undergird and serve as the foundations for anything else and everything else that we talk about, then it's not Christian. Do I get an amen on that one? It, it is not Christian. At the risk of sounding redundant, if it's not based upon repentance and faith, it is not Christian. You can have all sorts of books about how to live a good life, how to save money God's way, how to have a good marriage, how to have a happy life, how to you know, exercise, I don't know, whatever it is, lots of good advice. If it's not based on the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, then it's not Christian. That is the cornerstone, the bedrock of our faith. Then he moves on from the most important thing to something else which is incredibly important, baptism and community. It says this, instruction about washings and the laying on of hands. Instruction about washing and the laying on of hands. Now, some of you are maybe tracking with those first two and now you've got to these and you're like, wait a minute, what? These are in the uh, ABCs list. These are the foundational doctrines. This is, this is a little scary. Let's talk about washings first. What kind of washings are we talking about? Is it a car wash? Are we, what are we washing here, right? The word in the Greek that we have translated as washings here is baptizo. It's where we get our word baptize. For whatever reason, the translators of the English Standard Version that we use translated it as washings, but the original root word is baptizo. And it makes perfect sense that the author of Hebrews would want to talk about baptism next because the clear pattern throughout the pages of the New Testament when you see the apostles preaching is they would say to people, repent and be what? Baptized. Repent and be baptized. So he talks about baptism. Let me just say a few things about baptism so that we understand this instruction about washings. The first thing about baptism is this. It is a symbol. It is a, 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 an act, a worship act of being united with Christ. It's a symbol of being united with Christ. Romans 6, the apostle Paul says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. When someone goes under the water, they are showing their identification with the death of Jesus. And when someone comes up out of the water, they are showing their identification with the resurrection of Jesus. It's a picture of being united with Christ. If you are a Christian, you are called to live the Christ life. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me, the apostle Paul says. So baptism is first and foremost about being united with Christ. The second thing about baptism is it's a symbol of being washed clean. How many of you know that sin defiles us? Not only our sin, our sin defiles us, but if you've been sinned against by someone else, it defiles us. It makes us dirty. In the Old Testament, they would use this language of clean versus unclean. We want to be washed clean. Well, baptism is a symbol. Just like water can wash the body of dirt, baptism shows that Christ's blood cleanses us from the defiling effects of sin. Titus chapter three says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. Again, there it is, the, the dead works. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Show of hands, how many of you have things in your past that you've done that you're so thankful God has washed away? Yeah? Another show of hands. How many of you have had things done to you that you're thankful that Christ's blood can cleanse? That's what baptism is about. It's about having our sins washed clean. Third thing I want you to see, baptism is a symbol of being united with Christ, but it's also a symbol of being united with Christ's people. To which some of you said, no, I've met some of Christ's people. 
Baptism has, since the earliest days of the church, been, been looked at as kind of an initiation ceremony of sorts. If you profess faith in Jesus, you uh, become a Christian, you've repented. Baptism was the way that people would publicly profess, I want to be a part of this covenant community. I want to be part of the people of God. 1 Corinthians 12, the apostle Paul talks about this. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, New England Patriots fans. Uh, look, it's, God brings together some really divergent groups of people, right? Praise the Lord, right, Genesee? Thank you. It says, and all were made to drink of one spirit. If you are baptized as a believer, you are baptized into his people. You're united with Christ. You're united with his people. So then the question is, well, who should get baptized? And let me just say clearly, repentant people should get baptized. Repentant people should get baptized. In Acts 8, it says, I mean, there's dozens of examples I could give you where it talks about repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. But one example in Acts 8, it says, when they had believed, they were baptized, both men and women. There are some Christians uh, who believe that baptism should be administered to infants uh, as a sign of being a part of the covenant community. Um, love them. We actually have members of our church who, who hold to that position, but we as an elder team lovingly will stand on the belief that baptism is for those who repent. Repent and be baptized. Place your faith in Jesus and be baptized. After one has confessed their sins and their need for a savior, they should follow Christ's commandment to be baptized. Next, number five, how should they get baptized? Believe the biblical pattern is full immersion. Acts chapter eight, multiple, again, multiple examples I could give. It talks about when they came up out of the water. There's a going under the water and there's a coming up out of the water. Sprinkling is fine uh, for summertime block parties, but baptism should be full immersion. And here's another reason why. If you look in other sources outside of the New Testament, the word baptized is used when ships would sink. Did you know that? We talk about ships being baptized to the ocean floor. Yeah, unlike those ships, we get to bring people back up out of the water, which is great news. <laughs> Baptism, the biblical pattern is full immersion, again, because it shows this, this idea that we are fully immersed in Christ Jesus. We're buried under the ground. It actually, uh, the New Testament talks about immersion, like uh, baptism, I should say, like when the armies of Pharaoh drown in the Red Sea or when the, the floodwaters drowned everyone and Noah and his family were saved from judgment. That's baptism. There's, it's a, this is a picture of judgment in the waters, but then we come up out of the judgment saved by Jesus. And here's the last thing I wanna say about baptism specifically, and it's this. Baptism doesn't save you, but saved people get baptized. Baptism is not salvific because we know multiple, multiple places it is by grace that you have been saved, not of works. There is not a specific work that you have to do to be saved. However, if you are saved and you are not baptized, then you are in sin because you are commanded in multiple places to be baptized. Peter said to them, Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized every one of you. I don't, I don't, mean to offend, I don't mean to hurt anybody's feelings, but if you are a Christian and you've not been baptized, then you're in rebellion. Okay, maybe some of you are, hey, I wanna get baptized, I'm ready to do it, just haven't had the opportunity. Great, let's get you signed up, let's do it. But for others of you, it's just not a priority. It's just not something maybe you've taken seriously and I wanna lovingly encourage you, call you, don't take this lightly. Jesus, his final words to his disciples before he ascended to the right hand of the Father, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptize them. That made Jesus' top two final instructions list. <laughs> Do it. We're gonna have a baptism service coming up on Easter. You guys, you guys like it when we get to baptize people? It's a wonderful celebration. It's a joyful time. If, if you can't wait until Easter, 
come find me. I'm sure there's a lake that's not all the way frozen over right now. We'll, we'll baptize you this afternoon. I'd love to do it. My brother-in-law got baptized in Ship Creek in Anchorage, Alaska in November. The water had to have been about 33 degrees. It was kind of slushy. I, that's how we knew he loved Jesus, right? <laughs> the other side of this, this coin of washings and the instruction of laying on of hands, let me just say a few things about laying on of hands. If, if washings is a little unclear and controversial, laying on of hands is maybe even a little less clear. People are confused. What does it mean laying on of hands? Why is that one of the foundational doctrines of the church? Why is this one of the absolutely essential doctrines? Uh, in our culture, we're, we don't do hand laying as much. If you just walked up to people and just put your hand on them, they call security at the mall, right? Hand laying is a very biblical practice. It's a Christian practice. We see it used in a couple different contexts. Uh, primarily, we see it used when elders are put into positions of leadership or other leaders are commissioned for works of service. In, in Acts 6, they prayed over the first set of deacons and they put them into place as, as deacons, as servants in the church. It says they prayed over them and they laid their hands on them. Another very common example we see of hand laying is when people pray for the sick or when they pray for those who are uh, demon-possessed or demonized, their casting out of demons is uh, associated with laying on of hands. That God's people are to gather around those who are sick and, and just place a hand on them and pray for them. The third most common thing we see throughout the pages of, especially the New Testament with laying on of hands is when people are filled with the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches that when you're a Christian, when you repent of your sin and you, you turn toward God in faith, that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you and that ongoing throughout your Christian life, you are continually to be filled with the Spirit. And one of the ways that that happens is by God's people gathering around and praying and laying hands on each other. So what, what is the author of Hebrews talking about here? Was he talking about one of these patterns? The answer to that is simply yes. What's the common thread throughout all of these different examples of the laying on of hands. What's the commonality? Other people. You can't lay hands on yourself. You could, but it's weird. You have to have other people around in order for there to be the laying on of hands. What this is, is an instruction about the absolutely essential nature in the Christian life of being connected to other believers in face-to-face, life-on-life relationship. You cannot be a Christian and be alone. It is foundational that there are others around you so that hands can be laid. And let me just say specifically, in our digital, online, social media age, it is more important than ever for God's people to have face-to-face, life-on-life, yes, hand-in-hand relationship. I'm thankful for podcasts. How many of you like podcasts? I love podcasts. I'm thankful to be able to listen to people teach God's word or, I don't know, murder mysteries, whatever kind of podcast you're into. A podcast is a terrible substitute for relationship with a local body of believers. Online resources, digital resources are great. But if you do not have other believers in your life, face-to-face, again, hand-in-hand, then you're missing out on what God has for you. You're missing out on one of these foundational truths. Do you have others in your life? Do you consider that Christian community is foundational to your faith? One of the foundational doctrines that the author of Hebrews would point us to. It actually makes perfect sense because what I said earlier about baptism being the initiation into the covenant community, the people of God. Baptized, you join with the people of God. You can lay hands on one another and pray for one another. Last pair. The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Number five, number six. Resurrection and judgment. Resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Some of these terms might be confusing. Some of them might be frightening. Sometimes we as Christians like to avoid these topics because judgment is not a hot seller in American culture. But the author of Hebrews says that this is one of the absolute most foundational doctrines. You can't go on until you know these two things, resurrection and judgment. Let me unpack these two together as a unit of thought. The first thing I need you to understand is that God created us as integrated beings. We are both body and spirit. We are material and immaterial. And at death, the body and the soul are ripped apart. That was not 
meant to be. That is not how God designed his creation to be. You remember back in Genesis, it says that God formed the man out of the dust of the earth. That God took great care in how he fashioned mankind. And then what does it say? He says he breathed the breath of life into him and the man became a living soul. We are embodied. We are meant to be physical and immaterial together forever. Mankind was never meant to die. Did you know that? It was God's intention that we would live forever. But the Bible says that when we fell into sin, death entered into the world. And now death has like a 100% success rate because one out of every one will die. Everyone. What happens at death is that the body and the soul are separated. What happens to those who are Christians, to those who are redeemed, number two, is they go to be with Jesus. They go to be with Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5 is one of the places where the Apostle Paul talks about being at home in the body. We are away with the Lord. In the book of Philippians, he talks about how he wants to depart, to go be present with the Lord. He says, to be absent from the flesh is to be present with the Lord. If you're a Christian, when when you die, your body goes into the ground, but your spirit goes to be with Jesus. We could call this place heaven. We could call this place paradise. We could call it to be with Jesus. We could call it um, Abraham's side. That's one term you see, Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom, meaning with uh, the father of our faith. If you're saved, when you die, your, your spirit goes to a place of rest, a place of joy, and a place of peace. But it's as of yet incomplete because we don't have bodies yet. We'll get there in a minute. Number three, for those who are not saved, for those who are not Christians, their spirit departs and goes to Hades might surprise some of you to know that that hell is not the destination of a non-Christian when they die. That comes later. Spirit departs and goes to a place called Hades and it is a place of suffering and darkness and sorrow and fearful expectation. Fearful waiting. Fearful waiting of what? Is number four? It's the day. The day of Christ's return. The day of judgment, the day of resurrection. The Bible shows that there's this, there's this culmination point. There's this day when, when Christ will return. It'll be unmistakable. Every eye will see him. Every ear will hear the trumpet sound and Christ will make his presence known on the earth. And it says that all those who have died will come back to life and will stand before God for judgment. I'll give you a few examples from the Old Testament. Isaiah 26, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. Daniel 12, 2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. 1 Corinthians 15, in the New Testament, The apostle Paul says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. The redeemed who are waiting in heaven, in paradise with Jesus right now, did you know that the saints who have gone before us, they're waiting, they are experiencing joy, but there is also an expectation. Do you guys remember like in the book of Revelation where it talks about the saints crying out, how long, O Lord? They're waiting, there's a waiting. It's not yet finished. Mankind was meant to be spirit and body joined together. They're waiting for the day of resurrection. They're waiting for the day of Christ's return. They're waiting for the day of judgment. And we should not only think of judgment in negative terms. Judgment also means sorting things out. Humanity has created a lot of messes. Do you agree or disagree? I think that one is like the one thing that every human being on earth can agree with. We've created a horrible mess. Part of what it means when Christ returns and enacts judgment is that he will sort out all of the knots that we have tangled up. That's good news because there is no politician running for president who is going to be able to fix all the problems that humanity has created. Our hope is in Christ alone. The unredeemed, those who are waiting in Hades, they are waiting for this day of judgment, but not with eager anticipation, with fearful expectation, knowing that they too will rise and they will stand before the throne of Jesus for judgment. 
and their sins will be counted against them and they will be sentenced to an eternity in hell separated from God's grace and love and mercy and experiencing only his wrath. There is a very real part of me and I'm sure many of you that wishes that wasn't in the Bible, but it is true and I only say it because my heart is full of love that there, if there's any non-Christians hearing my voice, you are in real danger and there is an invitation today to turn from your sin and receive God's grace and mercy so that you do not experience judgment because this leads me to my last point, number five, the Christian has nothing to fear on the day of judgment. Nothing. If you're a Christian, we don't fear judgment day because our verdict is already secure. When Jesus died on the cross as a propitiation for our sins, that is a guarantee that one day when you and I stand before Jesus on judgment day, the gavel will slam down Jesus will say, not guilty. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my reward. For the Christian, judgment day isn't about sins versus righteousness. It's about receiving eternal rewards. Look what the apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 4. He says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. He's talking about kind of looking at the end of his life. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who has loved his appearing. In 1 John 4, 17, the apostle John writes, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. If you are a Christian, I want to lovingly reminds you of what God's word says. You have nothing to fear. You don't need to live in fear of God's wrath. You don't need to live in fear of God's judgment. Your verdict is secure. Jesus paid it all. If you are not a Christian, I plead with you from the bottom of my heart, turn to Jesus, receive his grace and know this salvation for all of eternity. The author concludes with this thought in verse three. And this we will do if God permits. This we will do. What does this mean? Move on to maturity. Know these foundational truths. This we will do, and I love this, if God permits. And here the author of Hebrews sneaks in one other foundational doctrine to the life of a Christian, and it is this. God is sovereign and in charge of everything. That's a whole nother sermon. I know I've been on vacation. I feel like I could preach another sermon, but I'm not gonna do it this time. This we will do if God permits. The Christian knows that their very own process of maturing, their very own process of growing is not something that we do of our own efforts. We don't just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and make stronger, better efforts. We trust that God himself is going to bring us along and mature us and grow us because he's sovereign and he's good and he's loving and we can trust him. So, let me just simply ask you, as we went through these foundational doctrines, how'd you do? How'd you do? For those of you who are mature Christians and you looked at this list and you thought, wow, I really, I really didn't know a lot of that. Then may you, by God's grace, seek to have your foundations shored up. The author of Hebrews says, hey, let me teach you. Let us do this together. God himself is not standing there rubbing your nose and he says, let's learn, let's move, let's go towards action. Others of you, maybe you've walked with Jesus for a while. You, you got through this list. You said, boom, nailed it. Okay, well, you're gonna work on the humility part this week, right? <laughs> and maybe still others of you are, are newer Christians and your action is, hey, I need to dive into these doctrines, make sure I have solid foundations so that as I follow Jesus, I don't get wobbly. And others of you who are not Christians, maybe your response is this week to turn to Jesus in repentance and faith for the first time. I wanna let the Holy Spirit convict you how you are supposed to respond.
And it's in that heart, I wanna call us now to a time of response. I wanna call us to respond in, in a few ways. The first way is through the giving of our tithes and offerings. So I'd like to invite the financial stewards to come forward, please, if they would. If you're a guest or a visitor, uh, you're under no obligation to give. I don't want you to feel weird about it. You're welcome to if you'd like. But this is something we are going to do as an act of worship, as an act of uh, praising our God who's given us everything. This isn't to earn God's love. This is to respond to God's love. And while they're collecting the offering, let me just read a few discussion questions, things to talk about and to pray about this week in our community groups. Number one, why is the study of doctrine important in the life of a disciple of Jesus? Number two, what are some ways that the study of doctrine can go askew for a disciple? What are some pitfalls we can fall into? Number three, of the six foundational doctrines listed, which ones or one do you understand well and which ones are more unfamiliar? And then why? Why is that? And then number four, this isn't as much of a discussion question, but maybe a community project. This is, this is what I want to invite you to. Pick one of those six doctrines that were listed and make a plan for more in-depth personal study over the next few months. Let someone in your community group know so they can hold you accountable, or even better yet, consider partnering up with someone who is also studying the same topic. We'll include some additional resources, things to read uh, on our church website, on the blog. If you have other questions or just things you want to dig into, maybe you want a book recommendation, my email address is shane at soundcitybiblechurch.com. Just kidding. You can email any one of us pastors. We'd love to help point you in the right direction of some, some good uh, Bible-centered resources. But I want you to really consider, what ones do I need to just double down on? Don't do all six. Pick, pick one and just focus in on that to make sure that you're, you're really strong in that. A couple things to pray about. Number one, pray that God would mature us as disciples in all ways, doctrine, service, generosity, whatever, but that we would never give place to pride or arrogance. And the second thing I want to invite you to pray is I want you to pray with a long-term vision. I want you to pray that God would allow Sound City Bible Church to be doctrinally strong for years beyond us. I added this prayer point after having a conversation with my grandmother this last week in which she was telling me about how her church that she's been a part of since the 1950s, I believe it is, they had to leave their denomination because the denomination had drifted so far from the foundational teachings of God's word, they had to leave their denomination and, and branch out independently. Sometimes, not just disciples, but whole churches and whole denominations forget their foundational truths. And I want you to just join with me in praying that someday after all of us are dead and gone, there would still be a church, I don't care what it's called, Sound City or what, but that's rooted and grounded on the foundational truths of God's word. Pray for a long-term lasting legacy. We're gonna celebrate communion. This is for Christians who have repented of sin and trusted in Jesus. The bread reminds us of Jesus' broken body. The wine or the juice reminds us of his blood that was spilled out, that we could be saved. And we're gonna sing. And this first song even talks about uh, the fact that there's only one God and we don't wanna worship false idols. We wanna worship him alone. And it talks about the, the prophets proclaiming this truth and now we stand on these truths. And so I want you to just sing this out loud and sing this out joyfully because again, the study of doctrine is meant to lead us to greater worship. So I'd like to invite you to stand if you would and I'll pray. We'll begin our time of singing and celebrating the Lord's table. Oh, Father God, I thank you this, this, this word, um, it's practical, it's convicting, it's helpful. God, we want to know the truth and we don't want to let the truth lead us to a place of self-sufficiency. We want the truth to lead us to a place of worship. So God, I pray right now as we begin this time of response, of, of singing and of celebrating the Lord's table, God, I pray you'd fill our hearts with your spirit afresh I pray you'd fill our mouths with your praises, that we would worship this God, this God who gives us these foundational truths that our lives can be based on. We pray all of this in the strong and precious name of Jesus. Amen.